This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The year is 1985, and progress is our middle name. The movie, Back to the Future. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. And we're doing that by going through different genres, different types of films. Right now we are in the middle of our summer blockbuster series. Every film picked by you, our listeners who are so smart, so good. And I've been loving the debates that people have been having about this series because while these movies are all fun, we are desperately trying to make sure that we showcase a lot of different styles of summer blockbusters here. And Amy, anything jumping out at you from people's reaction to the first couple episodes so far? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That I am not alone in like imagining that uh, Laura Dern and Sam Neill are a couple in Jurassic Park, but maybe aren't a couple. There has been much debate about this um, with some people really honing in on the scene where it looks like uh, Jeff Goldblum is about to maybe start hitting on Laura Dern and he turns mm -hmm. to Sam Neill and Sam Neill, he asks Sam Neill, he looks like, oh, she sort of say it, what do you think about this? And Sam Neill just says, yeah. And there's, People interpreting this in different ways. Like, is he saying yes as in they are a couple? Or is he saying yes as in he thinks they should be a couple and he's just going to claim it now? He is scaring away a man, a contender to his uh, girlfriend throne without actually doing anything about it. Like, I don't know if that yeah means they are actually dating. And I'm, I enjoy parsing this one syllable with much, much, much uh, well, passion. More passion than I should have. There are also people out there that said that we were absolutely crazy for thinking that because at one point they talk about having kids. I talk about having kids with all of my friends. Don't you? <laughs> with with them? It's not a with them scenario. It's like, do you like kids or not? 
She's not saying like impregnate me necessarily. Okay. You're just I love talking it. to I, your colleague. What do you think about how you feel about life? Well, to continue our Jurassic Park uh, debate, um, I had my theory that people like Jurassic Park more than Jaws, which was an offensive thing to say to anyone, I think, over 35 years old. And when I put out a little, you know, a poll on Instagram, Jurassic Park destroyed Jaws, destroyed it, like almost 78% to like 22%. And I was actually shocked at that split. And I was equally shocked by the amount of people who reached out and was like, this is bullshit. This is complete. Fu- no, no way. No way. No, no one wants to hear uh, that. I think Jurassic Park has a stronger hold on the public's consciousness than Jaws. Doesn't mean anything. But I think this whole debate was actually summed up and encapsulated best by someone on uh, Twitter who goes by Cheeseman20. Cheeseman20 wrote, Jaws is the better movie. Jurassic Park is the better blockbuster. And when I read that, I was like, that is true. Like, Jurassic Park is a blockbuster. Jaws is a 70s film, which I absolutely love. And it is an essential part of the building blocks of a blockbuster, but it is not your typical blockbuster in any way. No, you're right. It is It is why we are here even doing this blockbuster miniseries to see how we got from point A, one fin in the water, to point Z, 99 robotic insectoid aliens that all of the Avengers have to kill in the last like 45 minutes of a film. And I'm glad that we're doing this. I mean, you know that I am to uh, put myself in the suit of another blockbuster, a bit of a joker in this debate between Jurassic Park and Jaws. I kind of just want to see the world burn. And I like having this debate because to me, it is the essence of one of the things I really value about the show, which is we inherited a list of the hundred best films of all time from the AFI and said, this list could use a fresh look, shaking it up a bit. And I think taking a sacred cow like Jaws and saying, we know that it is pivotal in cinema history, but does it still remain on the list as a film in its own? I'm game to have that debate. And also I do think it's interesting to see how we got from summer blockbusters that star Roy Scheider to like only starring The Rock. Don't throw any shade at The Rock. I can't wait for the Jungle Cruise. Now, no, but, I'll but tell you this is what we're talking about, though, isn't it? I know. That, like, I was Spielberg just is a guy. I know. But like, I was thinking about it today because I was on my walk and I walked by a poster for the Jungle Cruise and I have to see the Jungle Cruise tonight. And I was thinking, we keep saying on this podcast, you know, how calculated it was that Spielberg with Raiders of the Lost Ark was like, we're making a theme park ride. And to just really have it hammered home that now not only is every movie a theme park ride, but every theme park ride is a movie. I just... I do want to see the world burn, man. I am putting on my crazy red suit. Well, I think you're going to be happy today because the film we're talking about today is Back to the Future. And just like Jaws, I believe Back to the Future was created not to be a film with two sequels, not to be a film that has a million toys and Funkos, many of which that I own. It was a movie that just happened to become a blockbuster. So we've just spent some time talking about movies that were built to be blockbusters. And now we're going back to look at a movie that became a blockbuster. So without any further ado, Amy, let's tell you where you're going, where you are, and where we were as we unspool it. 
1985, and Coca-Cola introduces New Coke, a.k.a. the worst marketing blunder in history. Nintendo releases the NES in North America with games like Ice Climber and Duck Hunt own them both. Live Aid raises $125 million for famine relief with concerts by Cher, David Bowie, Duran Duran, Elton John, Hall & Oates, Lionel Richie, Bob Dylan, Madonna, and Queen. Michael Jordan, the newcomer in the NBA, is named Rookie of the Year. Michael Jackson buys ATV Music and every Beatles song for 47 million bucks. And I believe that the, the story there is that Paul McCartney told him to do that. Uh, notable firsts include CDs, Microsoft, Windows, and the first dot com. The hot movies are The Color Purple, Clue, Rambo, First Blood, Part 2, Rocky IV, Cocoon, and of course, today's film, Back to the Future. Amy, who's in it? Who's made it? What's it about? Give me the stats. Back to the Future. It is directed by Robert Zemeckis, a filmmaker that I feel like we seem to be talking about constantly nowadays mm -hmm. on this podcast. We've already done episodes on Contact, which we loved, and Forrest Gump, which, I mean, it's a box BS. But Back to the Future is one of the films that really put Zemeckis on the map. It is written by Zemeckis himself, along with his partner, Bob Gale. And the two Bobs, which is what people called them, came up with the idea for the film back in 1980 when Bob Gale, the second Bob, he looked through his dad's old yearbook, saw that his dad was like the class president type of guy and thought, man, if I went back in time, I don't know if my dad and I would have been friends. That is, of course, a killer premise for a movie, right? Except that nobody in 1980 wanted to make this movie. It was rejected 40 times for reasons that we will get into in a bit. But then finally, Back to the Future got greenlit and this script about, you know, cool kid Marty McFly, he jumps in his mentor Doc Brown's time-traveling DeLorean, he zips back to 1955, and he accidentally disrupts his own future birth when his mother falls in love with him instead of his dad. Finally, this movie started to film, and a month into it, this movie was disrupted when Zemeckis realized he had to recast his lead, then played by Eric Stoltz, for, yes, reasons that we will get into in a bit. This was a $5 million screw-up, but the movie more than paid for it when it became the biggest hit of the year. Now starring, of course, Michael J. Fox as Marty, Christopher Lloyd as Doc, and Leah Thompson and Crispin Glover as Marty's parents, both in 1985 and his just friends in 1955. Take a listen. Marty? Why are you so nervous? Rain. Have you ever... Uh been in a situation where you knew you had to act a certain way but when you got there you didn't know if you could go through with it oh you mean like how you're supposed to act on a first date oh uh, sort of well, I, th I think i know exactly what you mean you, you, you do you know what i do in those situations what i don't worry all wrong. Thanks to these Stoltz shenanigans, shooting a Back to the Future was not wrapped until April that year. But when the studio made the rough cut, they were like, oh my God, this film is amazing. And they moved up the release date to July 3rd, 1985, which is two weeks earlier than they planned. They really had to rush the special effects on this. They'd actually even already made buttons that said like coming July 19th, which they had to all throw away. That is an alternate history of buttons that I'm curious to find. Uh, but I mean, Amy, just to add one detail there, you know that this movie was released nine and a half weeks from the day it wrapped. That is... That is I mean, insane. If you, 
in absolutely bananas. I have never heard of such a rushed production schedule. Like, I mean, that's color, sound mix, ADR, everything needed to be finished in nine and a half weeks. I mean, that is just two months. Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah, does not happen, right? And if it does, it's probably a disaster, right? Except not here. Not here. When this movie came out, it became number one of the entire summer, and it basically stayed number one for the next 12 weeks. It got knocked out like one week, and then the next week it was just back to number one again. It was It was number massive. one of the entire year. 1985, yeah. the highest grossing film of 1985. And that, you heard the movies that are out this year. We're talking about big, giant films, and this one holds its own. I mean, against, you know, Rocky IV and, and Rambo and The Color Purple. I mean, this is a, this is a big, and the big, giant. And The Goonies. Oh. And, of course, like the film itself, the number one song on the charts on July 3rd when the movie came out has also become, I would say, shorthand for the 1980s as a whole. They are just signifiers. And it is, of course, the Phil Collins classic, Susa Studio. Oh, By the way, Paul, love it. Did you know that Susa Studio is actually like supposed to be a girl's name? I really have never listened to this song that closely. And I it is, do. but he was like, what if we just had a girl and that was her name? Because then you can pretend it's like anybody's name on the planet. It is uh, a fact that I know only because, um, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show, but um, one time I was in a fist fight because I told someone that Phil Collins sucked. And um, and I was sucker punched uh, on the bus. I was like, Phil Collins sucks. I turned my head and this kid just cold cocked me across the face. Uh, and I have told that story a handful of times. And I went into a little bit of a Phil Collins wormhole one time just to kind of, you know, see why I felt that. What was what was going on there? And and I found out a lot about uh, Phil Collins. And uh, yeah, I knew a little bit about this as a studio. So you're saying violence works because this kid was right? Well, I don't think he's right. I mean, you know, my argument was that Billy Joel is better than Phil Collins. And you know what? I think at the end of the day, I would still put money down on that. Okay, but what about Huey Lewis, the sound of this movie? Okay, well, first, Amy, let me just tell you, I'm going to have a very hard time talking rationally about this film because this film defined me. This film is such a part of my Youth, it's a part of me in every way. I mean, I've owned Back to the Future, the vinyl album when it came out. Back to the Future, the cassette tapes, I could listen to it in the car. I used to tape the movie on cassette tapes and listen to it on my Walkman. I was so bummed there were no toys. I bought the shitty games where they didn't have a shitty game for the first one. They had shitty games for the sequels. And uh, I I am all in on Back to the Future. So much so that, you know... I plagiarized this for school essays when I was a kid just because I wanted to live in this world. I loved everything about it as a huge family ties nerd uh, or not even nerd fan, I should say. And I realized and I was watching it last night that I was lying to myself by not having this in my top films on my letterbox profile because I was like, this movie is incredibly defining for me. I mean, this comes out when I'm about, you know, uh, nine years old or you're eight or nine years old. So it just, it hits me in a moment where I'm like, 
I, I learned how to skateboard because of this. I tried to hold on to my parents' car because of this. That was dangerous. I, I started playing guitar because of this movie. Everything that Marty McFly did, I tried to do. Jean Jacket did it. Tried to get that same sort of uh, orange uh, vest. Literally tried to dress, do everything like Marty McFly. Love Marty McFly. Love it all. Been to a Back to the Future convention. I mean, Amy, I've sat in the DeLorean. I've sat in one of the actual DeLoreans. I am all in as a Back to the Future super, super, super fan. I mean, it it is... A defining movie for me. What you're saying is if this movie didn't come out, you would be a different human. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't say I was good at skateboarding or good at playing the guitar. Now, so in many ways, I would still be the same person talent wise. But <laughs> Bad at um, skateboarding? You know, uh, yeah, terrible at maybe, skateboarding. Maybe if you but were I, recording this movie on a cassette tape, you'd have more time to skateboard. I mean, maybe that that is very true. I will say... You know, you, you brought it up, and I think it's it bears just some discussion here at the top. Because this movie, like we said, was not meant to be a blockbuster. I think it was going to be a big movie, you know, it, it's or, or it was going to be a Spielberg movie. You know, he produced it. Um, you have Zemeckis directing it. But it wasn't like a guaranteed thing. I think in many respects, this and Goonies all felt about like the right thing. You know, like, okay, yeah, we're going to make this movie. It's going to be fine. And um, they put Eric Stoltz in the lead of this film. And I've tried for years to find footage with sound. You can't find footage with sound. You Not can with only sound, find... just with image. And I think that that's so incredibly respectful to Eric Stoltz. I can't even say, but I also just want to see it. And I guess the, the lore of Eric Stoltz uh, was after the first table read, everyone looked at each other and was like, I don't think he knows this is a comedy. And I think everyone thought, oh, well, he'll start to play into the comedy beats. But he never did. He played it more as this drama of what would it be like to meet your parents in high school? And I and I guess I just wanted to talk about that. Like, that concept is a scary concept. Like, I mean, I could see the scarier version of this movie or or the more dramatic version of this movie. Right. I mean, this is a movie that literally has a pivot point where a man is supposed to try to grab his own mother's boobs, thus, you know, causing irreparable damage to his psyche. I mean, this movie takes its premise to some dark places. And and I think the vision of the producer, there's this is a movie where you know a lot about one of the producers who was involved, um, Sid Scheinberg. Sid Scheinberg really was pushing for Stoltz because Stoltz was in a movie that was about to come out called Mask that was like really dramatic, a really like a brave performance. And he thought that Stoltz could be this generation's version of an actor we love on the show, a new Jimmy Stewart. And so he wanted Stoltz to play this like Jimmy Stewart, living that kind of anxiety dream that we've seen Jimmy Stewart do in movies, you know, because this movie is a lot like It's a Wonderful Life on the surface, you know, towns you go back and forth in like... What alternate universe do you want to live in? And that is the movie that Sid saw in his head. And he was like, who could be our Stuart? I think this young Stoltz kid had something. And then they dye his hair red. I had this alternate history in my mind of like, if Eric Stoltz had gotten to play this and become a big star, would Hollywood respect redheaded men more as a person who really loves redheaded (laughs) men? But then I saw the pictures and they dyed his hair black. And I was like, well, it would have done nothing for redheaded men. But it is interesting. Like, 
like everybody else in them was picturing more of like a Bob Hope type, except for this producer, Sid, who had the, the, the power to say we're getting stolts. And then also said, if you think I've made a mistake, you can tell me and I will redo the movie, which was a promise they really held him to when, when um, they didn't like how Eric Stoltz was playing it. But I was thinking there's this irony here because, you know, we've been talking about how a movie like Rebel Without a Cause, this like Jim James Dean 1950s movie, this pivotal moment in 1950s movie history shaped a whole generation of actors to try to be the next James Dean, to try to do the method thing, to live the James Dean life. And one of those actors was Eric Stoltz. Like he's directly influenced by James Dean and this version of the 1950s that he really worshiped. And in seeking to be the next James Dean, he got himself out of this movie because he was too James Dean. And it's an interesting moment where like the method kind of turns around and bite somebody and like hurts their whole career path. I mean, when you hear like the person who talks the most about the Eric Stoltz years is Thomas F. Wilson, who plays Biff and Biff will tell some shit about what it was like to be working with Eric. I mean, this is him talking about working with Eric. Very different thing. A very different thing. Like too serious. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you want me to say? I think uh, I think it was bad, and uh, you there know, you and I, yeah. he wasn't uh, friendly to me. So I don't care. <laughs> uh, he was. I mean, Eric got fired a couple days before he was just going to get his head pounded in because in the scene in the cafeteria where he's pushing me, and Strickland comes up. Yeah. Like Ted. Hey, Ted. And I'm almost punching him in the face. He was pushing me so hard with his whole method thing. The method was very strong toward me. Right. You know? So because you're the you're the antagonist. Of course. So he was I mean, he was driving the heels of his hands hard into my collarbones. Mm -hmm. I mean, really pushing me. And uh, and I'm talking to him to, between takes, you know, early takes. Hey, uh, hey, uh, Marty. <laughs> You're just really. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a movie. You know, we could just pretend. We take, I mean, I will I will move back if you push me. Like I'm jutting back. Right. So we'll be cool. But just like you really, you're gonna break my collarbone, man. And he pretends he really doesn't hear me because I'm not in the scene with him at that point. And take two. <laughs> Bam! It's my collarbones, and I'm starting. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me, Eric. <laughs> this is a movie. It's only in pretend it's times when you're getting paid that you can push me like that and I don't punch you right in the face. So, you know, let's set chill out. Bam, I had huge bruises on my chest and my collarbones were killing me. So, you got like so many method actors like myself, I was going, well, live by the method, die by the method. I have to admit, as a person who thinks that the method can get a little tedious, I enjoy hearing a story where the method goes too far. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, when we talk about great method actors, very rarely are we seeing that in comedies. And I think you could probably draw a line to Jim Carrey doing Andy Kaufman, but that's a drama too. Um, I don't think it works. I don't think it works. I think you need to be more connected in comedies. I think you need to be really with your partner in a way to find organic moments. And I understand the method is all about living and being this character, but it seems like there was a looseness missing from this performance. And Eric Stoltz has gone on to have an amazing career as a great actor. Uh, you could even argue that on the surface, at a certain point, uh, when they were both working, Eric Stoltz was probably working more successfully than Michael J. Fox. Like Michael J. Fox, I think, had a harder time, you know, finding that next 
thing, you know, especially in film, uh, you know, not in TV as much. But um, so I, I do think there is something really fun about this story that, yeah, there two things can be true. He can be a great actor, but not right for this yeah. film. And um, you could even say that like Eric Stoltz, I think, represents part of this conversation we're having with this entire blockbuster series, which is we're looking at how film culture changed, you know, post Jaws through the 80s, through the 90s, took this populist shift. Eric Stoltz is a guy who, as a teenager in the 80s, when the Brat Pack is rising and when these movies are starting to become big and when Spielberg is doing like E.T. and Raiders, his mentality is still in the 70s. He wants to be Pacino and De Niro, and he doesn't realize that actually in this world, you need to be Michael J. Fox. Right. For this film, you know, in this in this big you yeah, know, movie. And where again, this I don't... type of industry film is going. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. There's something about this script on the surface. Eric Stoltz feels more like the character on the page. And, you know, the idea that he's in a rock band, he has a girlfriend, he seems to me... Not like a nerd, and maybe Michael J. Fox at that point, because he was on Family Ties and he was such like a, a Republican, he didn't feel like the cool kid, even though he was beloved and everyone thought he was so cute and so funny. He didn't seem like this frustrated teen, which is, I think, the way they kind of position him in the beginning of the film a little bit. Like, you could see where Eric Stoltz fits into that. Yeah, I, I always think the intro is really funny where... Where Michael J. Fox shows up at school and he's like the bad punk rock kid. But you're looking yeah. around the school and everybody else is much more punk rock looking than he is. They all look much cooler, but he's like the dangerous rock and roller for some reason. And by the way, when he plays that like guitar, like as he's, as he's auditioning for the Battle of the Bands, the guy who rejects him is in fact Huey Lewis, rejecting oh, him for best. playing a Huey Lewis song. just too darn loud it's so great and by the way that's and that riff is the riff uh of the power of love which is mm -hmm. the song in the movie again i love stuff like that <laughs> and i'm gonna go out on a limb and just say this can i just say to you just to get it out of the way at the top i don't know if he's a good musician i don't think that marty is a good musician because when he plays at the enchantment under the sea dance he does not play well he starts playing well, and then he breaks into like a Jimi Hendrix style like riff where it's just like noise music. And I was really wrestling with that the other day. I was like, what? That's odd. It's odd because I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, this sucks. This is not what, <laughs> this is not good. Like, it would have been just better if he just played a great song um, 
and that would have been that would have been it. Um, I'm fine with it though because I I think to me that adds some resonance to number two in the series that it's not about like can he achieve his dream career as a rock musician? It's like we all agree that he's pretty just like a basic noodler. He doesn't deserve right. to be a rocker. This is not even going to be like Bill and Ted aspiring to write the greatest song exactly. of all time. You're right. That's not who he is. But and it's true. Like thinking about this movie coming out just a couple years after. Have you ever seen Class of 1984? It's like a long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's like one of the first movies with Michael J. Fox. It comes out right before Family uh, Ties. Um, And he's like the nerd in that movie. He's like the defenseless, like doughy guy. He gets picked on. I think he gets stabbed, possibly murdered in that film. But he's like the geek, and he suddenly like is able to revamp himself as an icon to at least like little Paul Shear, you know, as to Uh. be the coolest guy in the world. And there's there's something in like seeing this movie where I realize I think I saw this movie a little wrong from the beginning. Okay. Because you know what? I think I never realized something key about that opening scene that is incredibly obvious now that I'm an adult. But as a little kid, I misinterpreted, which is that first pan across the dock Rube Goldberg wall of clocks. You know, and then you start to see um, the coffee pot and the burnt toast and like the dog food that makes a mess everywhere. You know, when I was a little kid and I saw that scene, the first thing I thought was just like, oh, this guy is a bad inventor. I didn't think mm. Doc is missing, which is the point they're trying to make. I have spent my entire life thinking that this movie starts with the wow. framework that that Doc actually is not a good inventor, just like Marty is not a good musician and doesn't know what he's doing, but somehow lucked into making this work. Am I alone in that? No, you know I think I love that opening now. When I was a kid, I was so irritated. I was like, oh, what is going on? I want to like get to the movie. Like, why is there so much, you know, but that that opening is so beautifully done. And, you know, we talked about this script went through 44 drafts before it was greenlit. And I think those 44 drafts, even though that sounds to me like a nightmare of epic proportions as a writer, um, that going through 44 drafts allows them to seed so much. When you watch that opening scene where no one's on screen, the camera's panning, you learn about Doc Brown, the type of person he is. He's obsessed with time. He is obsessed with inventions. He's been away. We learn about the plutonium. We see elements of everything. We see elements of things that will be referenced later on in the film. You know, every this movie is completely seeded with so many... um fun twists and turns, ones that are incredibly obvious, like the, uh, you know, vote for Mayor Goldie Wilson, and then the other one in 1955, where it's, you know, vote for the other guy. Just so many layered moments throughout the whole thing. And I think that that opening sequence is a great way of, like an overture without music. And by the way, the music here by Alan Silvestri is amazing. Uh, But it really does so much to let you into the world in a visual way before we even meet any of the characters. It does. And what popped out to me on this watch of that pan was the newspaper article that's like framed on the wall. Yes. Where it yes. says that Doc lost his entire house in a fire and that because he lost all of his money, he had to um, sell all of his property. That Doc came from a wealthy family that owned over 400 acres in the middle of Hill Valley his house burns down to fire. It looks like from the date, I wasn't watching it in 4D or 4K. So it looked like it was the 1960s at some point. 
But Doc in this movie goes from like upper middle class to really poor. He lives behind a Burger King. Like you realize that he sold his own family land to this Burger King. And now there's a fence and he lives in his own garage. The house that they use for Doc's house when they go um, back to the future is actually like a house that's been turned into a museum because it's such a beautiful like so display gorgeous. of arts and craft, what they call that kind of style of architecture, like handcrafted um wood grooves assembly and i don't know why maybe it's like the world that i'm like my mindset right now i got really stuck on this idea that this is a movie that opens framing that doc is going to lose everything become a broke artist become a guy who can't get his own plutonium unless he like lies and like says he's going to work with terrorists and actually the film never references that at all for him there's not really a moment where marty's like oh by the way don't burn down your house like he still is faded well as but like Doc, an artist to lose everything. Well, it's, it is Doc, a movie about how like I think like economics affects people's life and how the economics of what happens when Doc loses his land and his home like really makes him even more of the crazy guy in town. And I found it so sad that it actually doesn't get addressed again when it's like seen in close up right there. Well, I think there's a couple things at play. First of all, Doc respects the idea of time travel, right? When he decides to use a time machine, it's to go to the future, not to change the past. And at a certain point in the film, you know, he says to Marty, don't tell me anything I don't want to know. And I think Marty makes this choice, which is like, I'm going to save your life, but I'm not going to tell you everything else. And I think Doc wants to live the life. And, you know, I was thinking about this idea that we all live in this, uh, referencing a movie that I know we both love so much, Sliding Doors. You know, this oh, moment where... Oh, I do where, love this movie so I, much. I, yeah, I was just joking. Um, but, but I like do. I love that movie. It's a I great can't movie. watch that movie much because it fucks me up for days. I always get mood after I watch that movie. Well, it's such an interesting movie because I think it articulates something that we all feel, which is one small change can affect your entire life. And I think about this all the fucking time. Like, whenever I am... In a moment of like happiness, this is more uh, telling for myself, I can look back and like, oh my God, thank God I did that one thing. I made, you know, it's like the butterfly effect. I'm, I went there. They don't even have to be major things, but how your life changes. And I get really scared sometimes. I'm very happy with my life, um, ultimately. Uh, but I get upset, like, like, oh, my God, what if I didn't do that? Where would I be? You know, and, and you know, there's some people who say, well, you would have always gotten there, but maybe not. You know, so maybe are not. Are you a person who lives in the past? Mentally? I don't live in the past. I think I look at the past and examine it and go, well, what would have happened that way? What, how did that happen? Or, and I think I feel anxiety over decisions I've made that turned out right. But I look on those decisions like, oh, my God. What if I didn't? Where would I have been? And I think there's a moment of just like, you know, looking at that and just knowing that our lives can take so many different variables. And I think this whole movie, the the whole thing about this movie is one small push in a direction here or there can change everything. Um, and that is so, I think it's such a universal idea. And I think it's a, it's a reason why this movie resonates to this day, why people love this film, because Yes, it's about meeting your parents, but it's also about how little things can change and, and, and affect you. I mean, Doc Brown did invent time travel, and I love that we don't get into it. 
He just invented it. He fell off the toilet. He, cre- he goes, that was a day I invented time travel. By the way, why is he putting that? He goes, oh, here's a red letter date in science. And he puts in the date that he did. And he's, and he's like, oh, I didn't even realize that. Like, So he's taught himself <laughs> his own date as being like one of the most pivotal times. In right history. up there like, with birth the birth of, of Christ. Birth of Christ. Um, but there is something really interesting about that idea of like not messing with the past and respecting the past. And I think a lot of the times we watch these movies and you know, you go backwards to fix something. And this movie is very much about go backwards to keep it all the same, essentially. Now, Marty sets off a course that he has to re... He has to put things back together a little bit because he's messed it up. Like, he would not exist. I mean, basically, he's got to get his family to exist again, which is, ah, I love this movie. I love it so much. But the concept of it is... I think we'll never go out of style. It's it's such a universal concept. Yeah, it's not but, a big it's not a big sci-fi idea. It's more of an emotional idea. Like you get to see how people change and 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 what little things can do. No, totally. But I, I wanna actually keep talking into like about the future that he is trying to protect. Cause like from what we see of Hill Valley in nineteen eighty-five, it's pretty gross. You know, there's like taggings awful. everywhere, it's falling apart. Um, the downtown is like, you know, mostly pawn shops. You get a sense that people aren't doing very well. And it struck me on this watch because I remember like, you know, back to the future is the one where you go to Hill Valley and Hill Valley is like an absolute cesspool. But in this movie, it's a cesspool already in 1985. Like it's already on the downward slope. And so I think because of the era that we've all just lived through, I was like, oh man, wait, is this a MAGA movie? And I totally forgot because I'm looking around Hill Valley and I'm like, man, this is a depressed area. Like, is Hill Valley going to grow up to be a place that like predominantly votes for like Trump? You know, what's going to happen to Hill Valley? Like, there's no industry here. This looks like a a majority white city that's collapsing. And so that was on my mind when we go back to the past. And I was like nervous that I was going to rediscover that the 1955 of Back to the Future was like, a MAGA paradise of when America was great again. And like everybody knew their place and everybody was like, you know, contently middle-class. But what I saw in here is I feel like, I feel like there's this comment on how Reaganomics is screwing up the country that I think this film is actually driving at because it's not just like halcyon about how everything in the past is better. And I really want to get into that depth when it comes to like the women in the film. But one of the first things you see in that town square is like, the gas station used to employ four guys to like fill up your tires. And that's four people who had jobs. And in the present, there's nobody there. And I think you see through this movie, how we've siphoned away jobs from this town, how like the mall being put on the outside of town is why the center of town is depressed. You can see in one of the storefronts that one of the signs says like, we moved to the mall. And it that's what really jumped out at me. The economic choices that are with Reaganomics that did fuck up this town and that I think this movie is making such a powerful statement in not not romanticizing the past, but looking at how we got from the past to the present. I 100% agree with you. I think what stuck out to me on this watch was exactly that, like looking at all those little small details, like in the background of the Save the Clock Tower scene, you can see over Marty's shoulder, there's a triple X theater, like in the town square. Like when he goes to it later on, it's, you know, it's a... Uh, we have air conditioning, you know, they're playing a, you know, a John Wayne movie or something. Um, yeah, or and at the, the Popper uh, Theater, that's like the centerpiece of town in the old school is now like a church because like 
rising religion is taking the place of art in this community. And- I, I love that, uh, that that those details. By the way, the Triple X Theater that I was playing a movie called uh, Orgy American Style, which I just thought was a great title, <laughs> Orgy American Style. Uh, but the, the but that world is not really commented on, but you see it so subtly, like. You know, Lions Estates clearly was supposed to be something, but now it's become something that's a little bit lower middle class. You know, I, I was actually thinking this movie is so interesting because they put forward some really interesting ideas like, oh, wow, you know, Goldie Wilson is going to become mayor. But is Goldie Wilson responsible for this uh, this decline in Hill Valley? And if so, I don't think that's a good message, but I, I'm not going to dig in too much because I think it's just. A well, joke. I mean, but, the, uh, but connect to that. I liked opening up this episode with that line about progress is our middle name because you realize that's what Goldie's slogan is, but that's also what the slogan was of the guy in the 50s, that politicians, all of them, will just keep saying the same thing without results. That Goldie's not doing anything different than the last guy. And I do love Goldie's little speech about how he's going to be mayor. Hey, what do you let those boys push you around like that for? Well, they're bigger than me. Stand tall, boy. Have some respect for yourself. Don't you know if you let people walk over you now, they'll be walking over you for the rest of your life. Look at me. You think I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this slop house? Watch it, Goldie. No, sir. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to night school. And one day, I'm going to be somebody. That's right. He's going to be mayor. Yeah, I'm going to... Mayor. Now, that's a good idea. I could run for mayor. A colored mayor, that'll be the day. You wait and see, Mr. Carruthers. I will be mayor. I'll be the most powerful man in Hill Valley, and I'm going to clean up this town. Good. You can start by sweeping the floor. Well, you know, and then speaking about the MAGA of it all, I think the reason why you probably are thinking a little bit about that, too, is... Back to the Future 2, this movie obviously had two sequels, uh, shot back-to-back, two and three. Um, You know, there are so many similarities with Trump and Biff, and that's been, you know, very memeable over the last handful of years, you know, how this person kind of came in, and when Biff gets control of the Sports Almanac in 2, and then essentially just, you know, takes over the town, you feel like this this whole energy of, you know, this powerful man. I think it is about like power and money and he corrupts the town even worse. Like the town becomes like this shitty, shitty Las Vegas where really all the wealth is in one tower, you know, and and that's it. And it's really in him because the town is way darker and um, yeah, the poverty has stretched out there. So I did think it was really interesting this whole movie across the board has bigger themes. It's not the typical blockbuster themes. It's like you know, rape is in this movie. I mean, that like the the third act is pivoting around the scene where Biff is raping, you know, Marty's mom in the car, and he's like, "Get out of here, kid!" Like, and she's like, "Help me, help me!" You know, this is like, um, you know, and again, when you watch it as a kid, you're not taking in all that sort of stuff, uh, but you are. There's so many dark details in this film. I mean, we also are following his dad, who is a peeping tom. Like, people are not perfect here. There's some weird stuff. There's some things I don't think would have ever passed the blockbuster test of uh, 2021 in this movie. Right. Because there's this scene, right, where his mom at the beginning tries to paint this world of what it was like in the 50s, how good everybody was. Pouting over the car. Jennifer Parker called you twice. I don't like her, Marty. Any girl who calls up a boy is just asking for trouble. There's nothing wrong with calling a boy. I think it's terrible. Girls chasing boys. When I was your age, I never chased a boy or called a boy or 
sat in a parked car with a boy. Then how am I supposed to ever meet anybody? Well, it'll just happen. Like the way I met your father. That was so stupid. Grandpa hit him with the car. It was meant to be. Anyway. Just in the structure of the first section of this movie, I respect how... You meet Doc Brown, you hear something's going on, then you get so invested in the daily business of Marty's life that it's like 20 minutes later until you remember that Doc Brown is in this movie and you see him and you see the DeLorean. I feel like you kind of get surprised by it, the way that Marty gets like woken up from the nap. Like you really care about Marty's day somehow. Well, you have to because Marty's, like the Doc Brown-Marty relationship is the MacGuffin of the movie ultimately, right? The The movie really is about Marty changing his life, you know, changing his life, right? Like this idea that he has to fix this awful situation. His dad is being pushed around. His mom's an alcoholic. By the way, the makeup work in this film is unbelievable. I don't think when I was a kid, when I first saw it, I even realized it was Leah Thompson and Crispin Glover playing oh, no. the older versions. They, they do My it so subtly life, and so well. I think Crispin Glover as an old man who happens to look young because of this film. I can't undo it. It's in my wiring. I, it, it's amazing that they are able to do such subtle work in this movie that it, it plays so effective. Yeah, no, exactly. But I mean, but back to what Marty's mom is saying there, this really speaks to me because I feel like we're told all the time in the culture, like women go back to the fifties. This is the kind of purity that we wanted to to see in like womankind. You know, this is what we hold up as like an example. It feels like so many policies are designed to drive women back into the 1950s and to get to go back to that era and realize what we're talking about now is a return to a purity that never existed and that you see that in in his mom's own character, that even her memories of how she used to be were never the truth. And that we've been kind of lied to about the pressure to exist in this type of femininity that never made anybody happy and never even fit his own mom. His own mom wanted more and had more passion and love and drive. And But she bought theme. into the narrative that was false. She lived the narrative. She knows it's false, but why is she even covering it up? Because she kind of has to. I mean... You know, this idea that, like, she's not doing it to protect her kids. I, I I truly believe that she, there's life in there. Like, when you see her tell that story about meeting, you know, her husband for the first time, there's like a, there's a love there. But as that story goes, and Leah Thompson, I just love her. She's amazing. She's but so good in this. She's so good. Um, she, you see, just through her, her voc- vocality, is that her, her vocal intonation, that she just how the story kind of sours as she sees herself in the past and where she is now. And it's such a, a sad, subtle turn. But she still loves him. That's what yes. I, that's what I love. Like when she talks about his dad, there, it's not like she has soured and hates her dad, the dad and like wishes she'd never married Chris Ben Glover. She loved him on the terms She fell in love with him. These like pitying terms that she could take care of him. And it still works. I love that she loves him and that he's really checked out and watching TV. Because if this was started on the foot of like, my my parents are so unhappy, but I made them happy. It, it's okay. That's not terrible. But I the fact that she loves him from the beginning as he is, even in all his flaws. I think to that point, we talked about this in some of our rom-com debates. It also brings up another universal truth why I think this movie works and resonates. It's like you need two people to bring their full selves to a relationship. And what I think Marty really does here is 
helps his dad find his the voice that he couldn't necessarily get out or make some changes because his dad's still got some issues and also allows his mom to be the full version of herself. And that's why they're happy. Not because he, yes, he orchestrated some event, but those events are about making them fuller people in, as individuals so they could come together as a couple. Right. It's about like, I mean, if his parents fall in love on different footing, his mom thinking that he is a hero, which I think he is. I mean, in a post-Weinstein world, watching the scene where George McFly interrupts Biff from trying to rape the girl that he has a crush on. And like, you know that he knows Biff is bigger than him and he knows that he's going to get himself really hurt. And he knows that he's putting himself at risk by by doing the right thing and sticking up for Biff. He does it anyways. And yes, of course, that's what a hero would do in that moment. You're, they're supposed to do it in fiction. But the way that Crispin Glover plays that scene, you see how scared he is at the same time. Not like a cartoon scared, but like legitimately how hard it is to do the right thing. Like Crispin Glover pulls that out of that moment. Not just like, I'm a hero He's now. He's about to he walk pulls away. out the terror of doing the right thing, of standing up for like the powerful bully guy. He turns his face into what I think is like the perfect Greek tragedy mask. And then the scene plays out. Hey, you, get your damn hands off. Oh, I think you got the wrong car, McFly. George, help me, please. Just turn around, McFly, and walk away. Are you deaf, McFly? Close the door and feed it. No, Biff. You leave her alone. All right, McFly. You're asking for it. And now you're going to get it. Biff, stop it! Biff, you'll break his arm! Give me a hand, original. He sells that moment as more than just like the fiction beat that I think the script had to be. And I love that that there's this depth in here because I think it's hard to do the right thing and stand up and say the right thing. And usually in movies, when a character does that, I don't feel like it means anything, but it means something here. Also, by the way, all this stuff with like Marty and Doc and like his dad and his mother, it feels like a secondary science experiment inside the movie. Like if here we have an inventor who's like figured out how to hack a time machine, this is about like trying to figure out how to hack the human heart, to hack like a female heart. Like what does a woman want? And they approach her kind of like a science experiment, which I think would be a little bit fucked up, except that Leah, again, doesn't play that character like a science experiment. Like she plays that character like somebody with drive. I like that she kisses Marty and then she rejects him, that it's not like she's this passive thing getting handed around. It's about like setting up the circumstances where she will fall in love, where she has the choice to fall in love. And I think that distinction keeps her character from feeling too wussy. It's not like a John Hughes movie where like a girl's put in a backseat and this guy takes her home and she's like, oh, this is wonderful. Like that Leah has agency here and that her agency is what they're after, I think is important. And I think you get this idea of like how a woman looks at a man or how I guess anybody looks at their partner shapes who their partner is. You know, if you look at your partner and think of them as great and strong, which she does because she meets him under different circumstances now, that vindication, that like love in her eye, I think is what shapes him into being a better person. 
to being the person he wants to be. And I think that that's a beautiful thing this movie says about relationships buried inside of it all. Let's go back to where we started and say with everything that we just talked about, you get why Eric Stoltz saw this movie differently. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I get it. I see, like, these are big issues. There's a movie, you know, everything we just said are drama beats. They're not comedy beats. And and when the movie does go for comedy, there's not, like, comedy set pieces in this movie. Uh, Michael J. Fox plays... He's, his reactions are funny. He is light and effervescent. So I think that that really helps. But yeah, he's there's like, like a little bubble running around. He's, he's yeah, not. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. He's, it's not like there's like a comedy set pieces where it's like, oh, everyone's shitting their pants. No. It's like. And he's not the, Jim like, carrying it. He's not like, what, what? Yeah. No, he yeah. like his reaction. I mean, one of my favorite scenes, like that who's on first scene in the diner. I mean, it's like scenes like that where it's like, give me a tab. Hey, buddy, I can't give you a tab. If you don't order anything. Give me a Pepsi free. Hey, if you're going to get Pepsi, you got to pay for it. You know, it's like the, like that moment. The opening scene is so bizarre, like where he takes the amp and he tests it out and then the amp explodes and he throws back and he's like rock and roll. Yeah. I'm like, wow. And you don't see his face forever. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's odd. Like, why? Why is the movie starting? At this? I think they wanted you to laugh right at the top. And then, you know, there are these there. They, they insert these beats. Even when he's like putting on his pants in Leah Thompson's room, he falls down like there are. But the rest of the movie is, you know, it's playing it straight. And if you don't have yeah. that moment that you're talking about, like those 20 minutes of enjoying his life, you don't see like I think it makes the jailbird Joey moment more effective when he sees the kid in the crib and you know you you start to understand there's a tiny little bit in there about like 1950s parenting like he's happy there he'll stay it's fine like yeah not the pressure of like take him to nine clubs every night you've got to make this kid a full rich human being and you watch like marty watch lorraine's dad essentially become her husband like watching the tv at the table not having this conversation like you know it's like it's and again they use it as a joke to talk about reruns and stuff like that but there is but you see the parallels of she's in this life that she's living the life that her mom led and she's at war with her mom a little bit or, you know, having a little bit of a, I don't want to be like you, mom, but then she becomes like the worst version of her mom in a way. Yeah. And when you look at her walk around Leah Thompson, like in that diner scene, she's carrying literature, you know, she's carrying Mm -hmm. like, I think Portuguese sonnets, I think, and a Hemingway book, like, his mom likes to live in romantic fantasy too. She's she has her own slight inner life. You don't quite get to know exactly what that is, but the, her choice of books says that she is more of a highbrow girl than she'll get to be. And I, I like that TV set scene too, though, because to me it drives home that part about economics of like we see this world in the fifties where fine, not everybody's rich. Doc's probably like the richest guy in town. Maybe there's a chance Doc could be the richest guy in the town in fifties. Um, but everybody seems okay. And the idea of having more than what they need, the idea of having a world with like greater inequality, which is where the eighties is going to go under like Reaganomics seems insane to them. And I think they get that across in the scene where Marty says he has two TV sets in the future. Dad just picked it up today. Do you have a television? Well, yeah, you know, we have two of them. Wow, you must be rich. Oh, honey, he's teasing you. Nobody has two television sets. Well, yeah, I was thinking about this too. And again, these are big ideas and there's so much. We, I mean, we love this movie, but I think what makes this movie so good are these little details. Because, you know, when we first see the TV in the, um, you know, in Lorraine's household in the beginning, 
It's like we could afford this TV and you know what? We're decadently putting the TV at the table and how that was like a really celebratory moment. And now like this piece of technology is not only, uh, there's nothing to celebrate. It's actually dividing us. It's like, it, like the brother has his back turned the entire time. The dad is doing writing. Like no one is communicating with each other. It's like this technology has brought them apart too, mm-hmm. you know, which again is an universe right. scene. And I don't, you know, it's like it and the glory of what was cool about that quickly has faded. Um, and I think it's, again, just another great thing that they're watching yeah, the same it, show choices, and they're watching the same show. Yeah. The choices that Marty makes affect Marty's life. But we're watching a whole culture make choices that we see will affect everything in this town. Yeah. You know, like the buying of the TV on that same day, that same day, time travel gets invented. Marty McFly goes back interrupts like uh his dad from meeting his mom but also they get their first tv like it doesn't have to be that they got that tv that day but somehow it does feel like it fits and i think there's something interesting about this movie as well if we're talking about these bigger ideas that they they seed in and i'm not saying that this movie is showing you exactly what 50s life is like but it's also not afraid to poke at racism, sometimes subtly and sometimes a little less subtly. I think, you know, the two scenes in particular are, you know, the scene where just the way that the owner of the diner treats Goldie. And it's not like I wouldn't say that he is a racist at all. I think he's a sort of but you there's an energy there like you are not going to amount to anything. You can't like it's just a foregone conclusion. You got to sleep, you know, and then the scene where essentially Marvin Berry and his band are out there, you know, smoking, you know, smoking in the back uh, in the parking lot. And the way that those kids kind of treat them again, like, you know, I think there's like there's a there's a, a bit of racism there from those kids. Like there's kind of like they, you know, they call them, uh, you know, they call him a racist name. And then the, and then those guys go after them. I guess I was surprised to see like, oh, this movie is handling some issues with race as well as, you know, uh, is society. There's, they're, they're not afraid to go to different spots and not just for jokes, right? It isn't just like a joke. It is showing certain things and it's dark. It is dark, but it's light because of Marty and it's light because of Michael J. Fox and this performance that he's doing basically on no sleep. I mean, you know this whole story about him in this movie, right? He would tape family ties get into a converted station wagon that basically had a bed in the back, sleep as they drove to set, and then start filming Back to the Future. And then when that was done, get back in that and go back to set. Like, he was working seven-day weeks to get this movie done on fumes. He's the star of a TV show and the star of a movie that's in every scene of. And you don't see that at all. You don't see any of that tiredness play through. Like, he is... I mean, he crushes this movie. He really does. And like, I think there's something in his performance that keeps everything moving at such a clip that you never have time to even get bogged down thinking about time travel movies. Don't most time travel movies, if you think about them for like too long and start the course of the movie, you start to lose your mind and you're like, this could never happen. Well, but because, the- yeah, they don't they don't get they don't even allow you to get there. It's like, it, yeah, it time travel. Like, get out of here. Da, 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 like, da, da, we're we like, need a, we going. need a bolt of lightning. We need a bolt of lightning, yeah. and that's it. Like, okay, cool, got it. Got to do it in style. And there's that's why we have a DeLorean. By the way, DeLoreans 
Did they have a problem with the car engine turning over? Was that like a joke of the 80s? Or is it just that this DeLorean has a problem with the car engine turning over? I believe the DeLoreans were a piece of shit car, but they needed to figure out something. So I think they were making a little bit of a reference to the DeLoreans being kind of shitty vehicles. Because originally, I think the first script, it was a refrigerator that went back in time. Like... (laughs) It was a weird thing. And then they were like, we can't put kids in. We can't show kids getting into a refrigerator like that's bad. We got to do something different. So they were trying to figure out what is a car that kind of had a look or a futuristic feel to it. I mean, this whole movie, there's so many fun things about what what this movie could have been. You know, like uh, like I'll just read you a couple of like weird side things, right? The original script had Marty playing that rock and roll at the dance. It causes a riot, which has to be broken up by police. And then um, and then Marty accidentally tips Doc off to the secret ingredient that makes time machines work, which is Coca-Cola, uh, which causes history to change. And when Marty got back to the 80s, he found that um, it was now the 1950s conception of that decade with air cars. Like So basically, he came back to like the sci-fi version of the 80s because he messed up the 50s like everyone was able to like get to be Jetsons essentially which I thought was a funny idea like so he came back and it was all fucked up Um, and then he also found out that rock and roll was never invented Uh, so he kind of goes off to be like I'm going to invent rock and roll now Um, you know so it's it's a very interesting idea that they were you know there's a lot of bigger ideas that they really just simplified and made it, I think, a lot more small and personal and, wow. and didn't go for those big, big jokes. And by the way, the film has been, you know, glared at for putting forth this idea that rock and roll, in fact, did come from like a white person, according to the logic of this movie. If he's the one, Marty McFly inspires Chuck Berry because Chuck Berry hears him play like guitar over the phone because like his cousin... Was it Marvin, Marion Berry? Marvin. Marvin Berry is like being the band leader. And I kind of went down this rabbit hole and I was like thinking about it like, well, you know, he is just playing his own song. So it's not like he heard like Marty playing an original song. I was like, that's great. Or like Marty played him Huey Lewis and was like, whoa. But then I was like, well, how the hell did Chuck Berry come up with his music in the first place? Like, because he really is the guy who revolutionizes rock and roll. I mean, 1955 is like around when you're hearing the word rock and roll used in a song for the first time. He has a hit this year. It's Maybelline. You know, he's transitioning from blues into rock and roll and he's going to put Johnny B. Good out in three years and then rock and roll will really explode. But it turns out the lick from Johnny B. Good is actually inspired by a song from 1946. Here, you can hear the lick. Uh, It's from a song called Ain't That Just Like a Woman by Louis Jordan. As you were describing all of that, I started to think about Forrest Gump. It had like the Forrest Gump sequel had things like Forrest accidentally fucks up the new recipe for new Coke and then they have to make a new new Coke, I think. And so the new Coke is bad and that's in the book. Yeah. And the way you were describing Marty, I was like, oh, he kind of in another world, he is sort of Forrest Gumpian. He gets to see and do everything, cross paths with all of these people and, you know, alter the course of the world in ways that he's not even aware of. I actually can see these two characters having a through line and they like to hang out in town squares. 
<laughs> yeah, well, by the way, uh, you're right. I didn't realize that. I mean, look, that may be a little bit about Zemeckis, too, yeah. the town squares. But, but, uh, but back to the DeLorean, by the way, like, if this is one of the movies that had a lot of product placement in it. And apparently Ford offered them $75,000 if they would re- replace the DeLorean with a Ford Mustang. And Bob Gale just said, Doc Brown doesn't drive a fucking Mustang. That's I mean, well, you know, there's a lot of like really funny, weird, like side things in this movie. E.T. obviously made Reese's Pieces like a giant thing. So people were really trying to get, uh, you know, get like their products in here. So one of the people that wanted to get their products in the film was the California Raisin Commission. Right. They were the the California Raisin Board. They did, you know, like the the California oh, Raisins. Oh, you to tell me about the California Raisins. That's my favorite Christmas special. Okay, great. So uh, I knew it. So they're like, we need them to photograph raisins. And they were like, you know, Zemeckis was like, if I photograph raisins, it's going to look disgusting. Like there's no way to make raisins look good on film. And even that's with Dean Cundy, who I want to talk about in a second too. Uh, But they, so they, what they, what they decided to do instead was they just put like a raisin ad on a, a bench so it's like that red is sleeping on. So like when Marty jumps over that bench at the end, it just says like, you know, eat raisins. And they they actually had to refund the raisin board's money because the raisin board is like, that's not that was not what we wanted. That's not product placement. That's sh- that's shitty, um, <laughs> which but I thought was so funny. That moment really pops, though, because it does. it's in that moment that this feels like the inverted, really screwed up version of It's a Wonderful Life. That Marty returns yeah. to his home. His home is still not taking care of its people. Like his home, he, you know, he shows up right by watching a person sleeping on a bench, red. And he's like, I'm home, I'm home, I'm so happy. And there's no question of it. He, it's like he shows up in Pottersville. He lives in Pottersville. He goes back to Bedford Falls and he's like, oh my God, I love Pottersville. Thank God I'm back in Pottersville. I, and and I, lo- I love that too, because it also is like, you know... He felt uncomfortable in that that cleaned up version of the world. It's such a great, it is a great thing. I never thought about It's a Wonderful Life in conjunction with this film until this watch. And probably because I really hadn't had that much, you know, history with It's a Wonderful Life. But there is that, it's a great moment that he's just like so excited to see the homeless person on the bench. And and I guess he's calling my bluff. Every time I watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life, I think I live in Pottersville. Pottersville looks fun. And I'm like, oh, maybe not. Well, Pottersville's a lot more like uh, Back to the Future 2 Biff's version of Hill Valley. But I'm, I'm also kind of trying to figure out what Hill Valley is and where does it all fall in. You know, um, I mean, Hill Valley, even the name. What is that? Hill Valley? What is a Hill yeah. Valley? I don't know. I it mean, is it seems a like flat a place nothingness, where, right? I if Hill Valley feels like a place that makes ranch dressing, I feel like there's Hidden Valley. There's a lot of those, uh, you know. Like it's, if they made ranch dressing, it, it they'd sounds be billionaires. Nice. And again, I just want to like keep on circling back to... Thank goodness this movie has a Michael J. Fox because that end sequence, like he can get you, he can play that, the comedy of being back at home and seeing Red and, and, you know, and, but he can also deliver that emotional, those emotional beats too. I feel like when he sees Doc get shot from the different vantage point, and I remember that kind of blew my mind when I saw this as a kid, because that, that technology of being kind of on screen at the same time, besides like, oh God, you devil, I really was not like something that you saw that much. It was like, oh my God, he's in the movie that we've already seen. This is blowing my mind, or at least it blew my mind. Um, Thank you for dropping a George Burns reference, man. Oh, of course. Come on. Uh, oh God, oh God too. Uh, the, um, 
But, you know, the, the other people, because Michael J. Fox was the first choice. He couldn't do it because Meredith Baxter Bernie was pregnant. They couldn't let him go from Family Ties because he was like doing more of the heavy lifting in the episode. So they, we had to find somebody else. And because he they was went the to surprise Ra- breakout hit, like Michael J. Fox's existence in that show altered the course of that show because it was conceived of as like a Meredith Baxter Bernie right. showcase. Yes, right. And then Michael J. Fox was kind of a supporting character, but like, oh, everybody loves the kid. I guess we're about the kid now. And so it was a show that was supposed to be about hippies trying to figure out how to deal with their principles in the Reagan 80s became like, Reagan 80s are great. We love Michael J. Fox. Yeah. I, I mean, but that's a funny thing, too. Like, we embrace, like, it's an interesting thing that this idea, everyone was wrestling with, like, Reaganomics on a certain level. Like, you know, because, you know, it was like, is it good? Is it bad? Uh, it was bad. Spoiler alert. Oh, by the way, yeah, bad. Um, but so, you know, when they couldn't get Marty or they couldn't get Michael, they went to Ralph Macchio, who, he could have to me, it. He could have done it like yeah. that to me feels like a good choice. He turns it down because he's like, I just thought this movie was like a weird movie about a kid, a car and plutonium pills. And then they go to see Thomas Howell, who, um, you know, as 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 somebody and I go, oh, see, Thomas Howell is actually interesting. He's a guy who I feel like, uh, you know, Soul Man is an interesting film, but he like he also had like an energy to him that kind of felt right but this movie is brutal because they bring in C. Thomas Howell and he starts rehearsing with Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson Mm -hmm. and he's doing two weeks of rehearsal and then Mask comes out and Mask is like huge and they go Eric Stoltz they bump him out after him now by the way maybe C. Thomas Howell is bad but they bring him in this movie is like recasting imagine being Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson in a way you get to do an amazing performance because you've now worked with three different actors doing it. Like by the time they're doing it with Michael J. Fox, they've been through rehearsal, they've shot it once and they get to shoot it again. So I think that these performances actually are better and realized, even though this movie had nine weeks to make it to the final, uh, to the final release. Everyone is on their toes. Like they know what they, they know what they're doing. Like they're just, they're not, uh, they're not just trying it out for the first time. I mean, I have to imagine every performance got better. I mean, it just feels like it. It feels like these performances are lived in. I hope so. I mean, the one that breaks my heart, though, is that, you know, Melora Hardin, she was supposed to be the original girlfriend of Eric Stoltz. And when they had to replace him with Michael J. Fox, they're like, oh, no, she's taller than Michael J. Fox. And so they fired her and replaced her instead uh, with Claudia Wells. Because Claudia Wells is a, a, a very interesting, I mean, in that, like her... Her whole ability, like she got into some personal issues and she couldn't come back for the sequel. And then they replaced her with Elizabeth Shue. And, you know, there's a lot of like, uh, there's just a lot of really interesting, you know, what ifs in this movie. And I think this is a movie. It's a movie about alternate histories that also has alternate histories. Yes. And, and. And there's a world in which, sliding door style, this movie does not work as well. Because I think what we're talking about is at the at the root of this film, it's a heavy movie that I guess they knew it on some level. Like, we needed to figure out, like, the right alchemy to make this work. Um, and, you know, maybe more movies should do it. I remember, you know, Woody Allen's whole secret of success was early on was like he would shoot a film, edit it together and then look at what was not working and then go back and re kind of shoot. Like he, he basically shot his small movies like the big blockbusters of the day, like going, okay, we're going to have like a month of reshoots, which is just basically additional shooting to kind of make the movie better. And, uh, I just love that this movie 
could have just been like, oh, I really like Back to the Future. It's an interesting movie. Or uh, if uh, Sid Sheinberg had his his way, uh, wasn't called uh, Spaceman from Pluto. Yeah, he right? thought that Back to like, the Future was too genre and confusing, and he thought Spaceman from Pluto would really get him in to the to the and the and and when they get this terrible note from the head of the studio, everyone's like, what? Call a spaceman from Pluto. What the fuck is that? And so uh, Spielberg pulls the best move of all time, which is writes back and says, "Oh my god, that was such a funny joke. We like you. You kept us laughing all through, uh, you know, post production here." Uh, it basically embarrasses him by not even saying it's a bad idea, just being like, "Clearly, that was a joke." And uh, you can read it online. They, they they have the full letter up online. It's yeah. great. It's, like, it's a great, great way to respond to a note. And I think that we're always looking to find ways to do that. And he took it off them and put it on him. <laughs> I, I feel like Sid Scheinberg gets a little bit of grief between that, the Spaceman from Pluto uh, idea, and also for insisting on Eric Stoltz. I do want to say, to Sid Scheinberg's credit, he added two good things to this film. Okay. Uh, one... Einstein, the dog, was actually supposed to be a chimpanzee. And he was oh, like, I looked it yes. up. No movie with a chimpanzee ever made money. No way you're putting a chimpanzee in this movie. So thank you. Thank you for the dog and not the chimpanzee. Well, yeah. That was smart. Okay. And the second thing he did is in the script, they kept calling Doc, um, Doc Professor Brown. And he was like, Professor Brown is too long. And he made them change it to Doc. I love this. Now, I, so way to go, Sid. Now I'm going to say two things. We talked a lot about Reagan. We got to acknowledge the time that this movie comes out. Obviously, Reaganomics are in full effect, but what an interesting time to make this movie because you have a movie in which you go back in time where Reagan was a popular film actor. And there's this whole kind of interesting convergence. So I imagine that part of the chimpanzee part of this was maybe, well, maybe a nod to uh, Space Shuttle. You know, you put a, a chimp in space, you know, but... I wonder if it was even a nod to like bedtime for Bonzo because that was a Ronald oh, Reagan movie. Oh, I wonder the if monkey. they had Bonzo jokes, right? That's what I thought because there's a really fun, there's a joke in here where you know there like these these things that they reference like a Pepsi free, a tab, like all the you know all these things just happen to be right now at this one moment these variations on themes from the fifties when he says to Doc he goes oh yeah Ronald Reagan's the president in the future. He's like, what? The actor? You know, he was, and, and Ronald Reagan apparently screened this movie and like loved that joke and re like really got into Back to the Future, a movie that is kind of very strict and harsh on what what he's doing, because so much so that in a state in the 1986 State of the Union address, he says, as they said in the film Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need roads. Never has there been a more exciting time to be alive, a time of rousing wonder and heroic achievement. As they said in the film, Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need roads. He does. I mean, he claims this movie for his own, not realizing that this movie is criticizing the America that these people are living in and the inequality he has created. All these levels are very specific. I feel like the go-to joke for me, not for me, but in the 80s, was always like, who's president in the future? And they're like, John Travolta. I'm like, well, Travolta. You know, it's like, and it, like that always felt like like this, it... Like this movie doesn't age badly because it because it we isn't lived making those it. I know, I know. Oh, by the way, because uh, we lived it and we understand how this happens now. I mean, I, you're, that, yeah, I think you're that totally right. Gives us a deep perspective on it. I mean, I think living our own life since we were children has has deepened this movie for me because this movie now is to me a film about like how sad it can be when your hopes and your dreams that you have when you're a kid don't come to pass. 
or how weird the future can get in ways that you're not expecting. You know, when you're thinking something will go like this forever or how even you're expecting one tragedy to happen when another one happens. Like Doc is expecting the planet to die in atomic war. You know, he's predicting this awful future that I'm always talking about. I'm like, oh man, when the water wars of 2045 start up, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be? It's I relate to this movie deeper now having lived a life where I can see how bad things happen into a country, to a culture. And I think that Zemeckis and Gail also had an interesting perspective. I mean, they said that, you know, they were too young to really like know the fifties, that the fifties were somebody else's memory that they were told about. And that the eighties to them are somebody else's youth, that they were right between these two generations. And I think that makes them able to be chroniclers of them without any sort of nostalgia on either ends. And I think as much as I pictured this movie as like a rah-rah nostalgia film, I don't think it is. And I think it's because they're not lionizing the 50s the way that even like George Lucas was doing a little bit earlier, you know, with stuff like, you know, American Graffiti. It gives this an edge that I think American Graffiti didn't have to me. I agree. I, I, like, that is really interesting to have that kind of young voice in there at that time. And, you know, when you're thinking about this this movie, it's written by Alex P. Keaton's parents, not, you know, like that idea. Like they are they are liberals pushing out this idea They you know, and it also is a bleak. It is a bleak movie that I feel like we're not allowed to have. And I know that you talked about like the death of, you know, the death of big ideas and blockbusters. And, 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 and I agree that there are these things that I've been noticing. And we watched Goonies with the kids and I may have rest I may have referenced this already, but, you know, we don't scare, we don't make people think in these big films as much. Like, even if you go to something like Inception, which is a great, fun movie, it's not really making you think about a bigger societal issue. I think we save those now for the smaller films. And, you know, Inception uh, makes you think about Inception. How did Inception work? How does Inception fit together? But it doesn't make you want to talk about everything that's in the movie. Yeah, I will say I watched Back to the Future um, yesterday morning. And when it was over, I like put it back on because I wanted to show my boyfriend the first scene. And then I ended up watching it again straight in a row. Like, it's it's like, what is that? I don't do that. There's something about this film. And I think it's it's that right moment of it's hitting everything that you want to hit. And it's the reason why it's the number one movie. You can't have a number one movie that doesn't appeal to everyone. Right. I think everyone feels, you know, it's like and the reason why kids are still watching this now this and karate kid there's certain things that still can connect with kids too and that that makes this movie a little bit different than even something like men in black we talked about last week and i think men in black is a great movie but there's a bigger there's some bigger stuff here that i feel like studios have gotten afraid to say that we can embrace or we can have like this kind of a voice in certain things without like shaving the edges off Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem 
of a detour. I want to posit something to you, though, mm-hmm. which is like both times this movie started to me. And I saw these words pop up on the screen that said, Steven Spielberg presents. I have to say a little piece of me died because when we were planning out this blockbuster miniseries, we never said, like, let's go back and like look at the works of Spielberg. I'm trying to get less Spielberg right. on this list. And yet Spielberg has had a, his hand in every single one of the three films we've just done. Jurassic Park, obviously, he directed, he produces Men in Black, he gets that cast on board, and he has a real hand in shaping this, protecting it, like letting get letting it get made. Because when they tried to greenlit it the first time, people thought Back to the Future was too square for like a Porky's generation. They're trying to really mm-hmm. like amplify whatever the popular trends were. They're trying to surf the current trends, and this didn't fit in that trend. And only Spielberg really saw the potential in this because he has that uncanny sixth sense for knowing what an audience is going to love, you know? And after he had just made E.T., he really had the clout to push it through. And Well, you know, yeah. And I want to just say, though, like, I love this movie. I really do love every Spielberg movie that I've pretty much ever seen. Like, and I was playing this mental game with myself. What if we back to the future and Steven Spielberg just didn't exist? What if he never well, made Jaws, though? Like, because uh, right. there's a piece of me that is really realizing I have spent my entire life living inside the brain and fantasy of a guy I've never met. This man I've never met, Steven Spielberg, has like shaped everything about my culture. He has shaped how I see movies working. He has shaped what I consider good popular cinema. He has affected me in ways I don't even fully understand because I have I grew up in his brain. His brain is the first movies I ever really saw and loved. They continue to be landmark movies. They continue to be announced as landmark movies. I want to know what it would be like to plug Steven Spielberg out of my body. Because honestly, it freaks me out that there is so much him in me and in everybody listening to this. We have not been able to escape him. He's the... Amazon of like film, except actually I I quit Amazon and everybody else should quit Amazon too. But like, I I don't, I don't want as much Spielberg in my blood as I have. I never had a choice in this. All right. Well, let me just bring up something here that I think is interesting. I agree. I agree with you. Like we are, we, if you are living in American film, you're living in uh, the film with Spielberg on some level, right? Either he directly or inspired by. But I also think there's something really cool about what Spielberg does, which is he becomes incredibly successful with Jaws. And then he opens the door. He throws the rope down to people like Robert Zemeckis. Like, if you've never seen Used Cars, I love Used Cars. It's great. It's a crazy fucking movie. Kurt Russell's fantastic in it. Um, I did like a four-hour-long episode on Used Cars with Jason Manzukis. Um on uh, Griffin and David Sims on Blank Check about used cars. And I, and I see like Spielberg going, I like what you're doing. I want to get behind. I want to I want to help you make, you know, I want to hold your hand and use cars. And then I see him, you know, look at Joe Dante and go, all right, I'm going to help you make gremlins. You know, I, I have this I have carte blanche right now. I'm going to get my cool friends like Barry Levinson directing young Sherlock Holmes or Don Bluth making American Tale. Like I love he, American Tale. 
But he's behind these really interesting people. You know, uh, like I said, Frank Marshall, John Patrick Shanley, you know, uh, gets to make Joe versus the Volcano. Uh, Jan DeBont with Twister. He you launches know, uh, one of the most successful female producers of all time, Kathleen Kennedy. He sees her as an assistant, yes. brings her on to E.T. Kathleen Kennedy is out of hand in every single one of these movies we've been talking about, too. He We're, is a talent seeker. He he does good. And I yet. Mean, but like he really is someone who I think can champion an idea. And that's what you kind of want. Like you want somebody to be in your corner that not doesn't over like that can watch a cut and say X, Y, and Z. You take three great notes and then you go off and make it, you know, and I think the best producers that have had their own success as writers and directors uh, and even actors, like you look at Brad Pitt with like Plan B or whatever that company was that he formed, you know, it's like what I'm going to just get, vo- I'm going to use my talent to get other voices out. And by the way, it doesn't mean that my stamp isn't on it, but I remember hearing but it the story. it also means that it's a certain type of film that is for a certain type of audience that becomes what we consider oh, the film and the audience. I, but I disagree. I don't know if Spielberg makes Back to the Future. I think that he allows... This but, it's, movie. but it's the same audience. It's the same thing. Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I guess you can argue that. But I guess what I what I like about Spielberg is... He's, he's inviting you to fish the same pond. And then we realize that that pond is the only body of water that exists anymore. Well, yeah, but I, I disagree in the sense of... I think it has a Marvel... Well, I've always talked about this with Marvel, that they allow directors to do their own thing, but they also create a world in which they don't fail. And I think that Spielberg is doing that. Like he's being someone who can help you get your idea, maybe note, give you a couple notes that get to a certain place. I remember hearing the story. Um, maybe I shouldn't reference it because it may not be for public usage, but I can tell you some parts of it. Director was working on this movie, wanted uh, Tom Cruise for this part in the movie. Tom Cruise reads the script. He's like, I want to meet with you. Brings his director in, goes, look, I'm not, I'm not doing your movie, but I love this script. And then for two hours, gave him script notes on the movie to make it better. And there are certain people like Spielberg, like Tom Cruise, you know, uh, that have been around for such a long time that they understand I can, I can help you navigate this system and give you these like little ways to succeed and get your own voice out. And not to say those are the only two. I'm just pulling that reference out. Uh, but there is something very cool about that. You know, I think Judd Apatow did that a lot too. Like, let me help you navigate through. And you're right. Like, you're always going to get a little bit. It's like wearing hand-me-down pants. But it's like, it. you won't look like, like, oh yeah, those might be... That might be Steven Spielberg's jacket or Judd Apatow's pants, but you are putting something different on it. So you're you are dressing it a little bit differently. I don't know. Is that know. a good thing I or a bad know. thing? I mean, honestly, like I feel You don't want Spielberg I, around. You don't I wanna just imagine what it would be like if he wasn't. Because I need that. Like I feel suffocated by his interests, by his fixations, by what he loves, by what he thinks is worthy of millions of dollars. By but what he he's thinks not is a the writer, kind of Amy. No, but he has the he has the power to green light. He said to shape. He has shaped us. Like, if you can't see that he has shaped us, you're deeply inside his brain. No, like, no, no. I, I feel like yeah. I, the image I have in my head is like Greek mythology. Athena is living inside the head of Zeus and she just wants out. And it's not even that Zeus does bad shit all the time. Although, yeah, if you're like a woman shaped like a cow, yes, he has. But like, you just need some air, man. I feel like I live inside a glass shack, except it's all been papered over with Spielberg posters and I just need some fresh light in my house. I think we're really talking about a time with Spielberg that was, you know, when we were 
like probably younger because I don't think that that's going on right now. I don't but think, I think that I don't it is. I think every I think he shaped what we think big movie making is, and people are just still trying to do versions of what he showed we should be doing. Like they are still making things in his template. Everybody wants to make the next Spielberg movie. Everybody wants to be the next Spielberg, and that's why like I want to do my own Back to the Future thing of going back to the films of like. 73, 74, 75, before Jaws comes out. Like, where were we headed as a culture before Spielberg came and took us in this direction? Because where would we have gone? Like, maybe it wouldn't have been great places. Like, honestly, like two of the films in the top 10, um, those years before Jaws came out, were like, you know, X-rated movies. Maybe we would be living in the Hill Valley that has like orgy American style in the marquee because like they were showing X-rated films. But they were sh- they were making films... For adults, they were making films yeah. for like grown ups. But, I mean, but, the, but, in, the, but Jaws is a film for adults. It is. You know, it is. And, it but, is. But, he I, makes I mean, it in that you, time and then everything changes. You could uh, say I that like Star Wars I, helps like drive the nail in, but he's friends with Lucas. Like you can't really extricate well, any of this I USC was, mafia. The USC mafia all did this together. Well, they all, was, they all like, did the different famous. things. But like I would argue that like Raiders, which I know is one of your favorites, is, you know, Raiders to me is also not exactly that. I think that Spielberg was elevating different things. Like, if you look at what I just read to you about, you know, these movies that Spielberg has done and directed. That well, yeah, on, but, okay, look, Paul, 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 you're yes. talking like, like you have Stockholm Syndrome right now. I just, I'm not saying these movies are bad. I'm just saying at all. I just said I watched this movie twice in a row. I'm just saying, can you imagine yourself free of them? I don't know. I don't... I don't see it as being as suffocating as you see it. I think what you're responding to are not talented people trying to live in the footsteps of Spielberg. I think that Spielberg has influenced a a gigantic grouping of directors who have gone off and tried to make their own things and have their own unique voices. I think that the studios want to remake Spielberg movies. I think there are movies that are bad Spielberg clones. But I would never say that Michael Bay and Steven Spielberg are the same. I think they make big movies, but in very different ways, even though they've worked together. I, I mean, would say that J.J. Abrams maybe is the closest to Spielberg, like as far as like output and product. But uh, but Michael I don't, Bay I don't almost think... like harkens back to what was happening pre-Spielberg, which is like Towering Inferno being the number one film of the year. I agree that, yes, there are some things about him that are... You know, culturally, he's represented us, but he also is trying. He's always trying different moves. If, if it's doing okay, Munich or, or anything, anything like that, yes. you're just proving my point that it is impossible to imagine a world without his films existing. And I think it's a worthy thought experiment. What would our well, film I mean, culture you, be if his films hadn't existed? Well, don't you can't you say the same thing for Kubrick? Yeah, but we're not talking about Kubrick right now. We're doing I mean, like a summer blockbuster that, thing. Uh, I just want us to be able to imagine a world without him. That's all. I just want us to use our fantasy brain and try to picture what it would be like if he didn't exist and have his fingerprints on literally every part of our culture. My entire childhood has been in his bubble. That's all. Amy, I think I understand what you're saying. And I'm not I'm not rebelling against it. I just think I think there's always someone to step up. And you're right. Like, if there was no Steve Jobs, would we be in a situation where Apple is this giant thing? We all have iPhones and Macs and everything like that. Like, would there be this? And I think on some level, there might be. There might be that person. But, you know, when someone like Steve Jobs comes to into the room, uh, the, the global room, they take up a lot of space. 
And you would never get the second tier Steve Jobs. You would always, if there's a one, if there's a first tier Steve Jobs. So, like, I think it's a hard argument to make. Well, who could have stepped into those shoes? It, just like this movie, it could have been a hit or could have been a flop. And I looked at like the the movies that came out after it, right? And it is seventy seven. The big movie is Star Wars, and that Star Wars, you know, is Spielberg how involved in he is he in that? I think that is more George Lucas, but a lot of rewrites, a lot of stuff. Then it's Superman after that. That's Richard Donner, right? That's Richard Donner doesn't, you know, works obviously with Spielberg, but I don't think Superman is a part of that Spielberg world. And then, and then I think, you know, from 1981 on, you're really seeing it's like Raiders, E.T., Return of the Jedi, and then you have like Beverly Hills Cop, Back to the Future, Top Gun, Three Men and a Baby, Rain Man, Batman, Home Alone, but you see like these cool little things like Christopher Columbus and Tim Burton, James Cameron, you know, all on this list that are coming up. I believe that maybe this revolution would have been slower, but would have happened because if Spielberg wasn't making Jaws, I still think James Cameron makes Piranha too. And then I do you still think, think that he James makes, Do you think there's even a Piranha movie if there's not a Jaws? Well, I think that he makes something, right? I think he, I, I don't, you know, I think he makes, he gets his way, he gets to make something, and then he gets to make Terminator. I mean, I hear what you're saying, like, is there anything without Jaws? I do believe there is stuff. I think that you, you know, you got to look also at John Hughes. John Hughes is a giant a piece of this puzzle we haven't talked about. Somebody who really gets uh, teen culture and revolutionizes that and is his own ecosystem. Like, John Hughes to me is, is the, is the yin to the yang, uh, or are they are both maybe the yin? Uh, like they are, they are, they are creating their own worlds. And I think John Hughes. So many people copy John Hughes. Um, so I hear you. I don't think that John Hughes was created by Steven Spielberg, is what I'm saying. And I don't think that James Cameron was created by Spielberg because I think they were ultimately contemporaries on some level. Like, yes, he took an opportunity because Piranha was drifting off of. Uh, you know, Jaws, and he got in there and he made something. He took a, he took an opportunity, but I don't think that they are. I think they are different. I think that a Spielberg movie and a, and a Cameron movie are very very different. Yes, but I still think that these movies, even the ones you listed, the majority of the one them are trying to operate in the wake of what Spielberg did to see if they could do it themselves or to see aha. We can make money here. We want to do that ourselves. The, the business is trendy. The business is trendy even here when they're saying we don't want to make your back to the future because kids like porkies. And I just think that Spielberg sets a trend. And then I think that Jaws initiates it. And then I think that his buddy Lucas that he starts teaming up with really helps solidify it. And then I think the real, it's the triptych comes when E.T. then makes a gazillion dollars and it's like you are now the Oracle. And if that Buildup doesn't happen. I mean, you even said yourself, like ET is where we start to get really product placement in. Like, just what does change? Because it's the things that happen in the vacuum we can't imagine because this was here already taking up that oxygen. And yes, it's not like these directors wouldn't exist. That's not my argument at all. It's more like who would people think the audience is? Who would we be making for? Or what films are not getting greenlit because they don't fit this template that Spielberg does really well? crowd-pleasing, vaguely nostalgic, better than it should be, popcorn hits. He does them so well. Just what else would exist? But I guess maybe you, the movie even answers that question on its own because maybe if, if they didn't exist, 
like maybe George McFly would just invent them themselves. And that's the movie's joke within it. Maybe like, maybe what Marty should have done is just go back and not just scare his dad by saying he's Darth Vader, but just give his dad the idea to write Star Wars. And then George McFly would be in charge of all of us. Who are you? My name is Darth Vader. I am an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. Is that a nice way of capping it? I, I like it. And I, and I just will say that I, I think you are, I think you're really right. And I think to put a cap on your cap, I will say this. While Spielberg is incredibly influential we also talk about the changing times and we spend a lot of time in this podcast talking about Reagan and the economic, you know, this idea of where the world goes. And I think that, you know, the, the grittiness of the seventies or the interesting films of the seventies are not only being affected by directors, but culture film is not just driving. Is it is one of the forces of culture, but there's a lot going on in the rest of culture too. Like, you know, the seventies into the eighties, that idea of excess and, you know, and greed and wanting to make more money also plays a part in this as well. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I think two things can be true. Like we can see like films as being art and then films as being commerce. And maybe Spielberg is the one that lights the match that goes, oh, we should be maximizing this. We should be leaning more into this. We should be getting more kids into the theater. But it also is a different way of, of looking at things, of going like, all right, this is, you know, culturally, the culture is pushing us there as well. And it's just not film. Would you agree with that? I would. And I think it's interesting then to even have that moment in this film where Doc says like, well, I guess this camera is why Reagan is president. You know, because I, I mm -hmm. think the interplay in here is complicated. Like, well, I guess if you have a camera and people are filming everything, only a handsome actor is probably going to take charge. It is true. Yeah. Like post camera, our presidents well, get a that's lot Kennedy. hotter I mean, and more charismatic, at least swaths of people. Well, I mean, but that them. whole that whole argument that Kennedy was only elect, you know, people who listened to the debate between Nixon and Kennedy thought Nixon mm -hmm. won and people who watch it thought that Kennedy won. Yeah. But there's one thing that maybe we both have been wrong on. And that is uh, how to pronounce something that's prominently said in this movie. Well, what would you say is uh, the secret of time travel or what what kind of uh, measurement must be uh, doled out for the Dorian to work? Uh, what was it? One hundred point two gigawatts. Ooh, you said it right. Well, in the film, Doc Brown says gigawatts and it is gigawatts. But they took Jig gigawatts because uh, Zemeckis and Gale met uh, a physicist who his funny way of speaking, he... He pronounced gigawatts as gigawatts. So we have had a whole culture of saying 1.21 gigawatts instead of 1.21 gigawatts. Oh, that's so funny. Usually I get in trouble for how I pronounce my G's because I really believe that the word gesture should be pronounced with a hard G and not a J oh. the way that, you know, the man wants you to say it. I think gesture, it just sounds like jester, like a court oh, I gesture. Like that. Yeah. I think it sounds sloppy. I'm into the hard G gesture and uh, and I will die on that hill. I will die on and, many hills, but that's one. You'll find at least a toe of mine on that hill dying. And by the way, if you are thinking in your head like, oh, boy, Amy and, and Paul read too much into this movie there. It's just a fun movie and they didn't have all these themes built into it. I believe that there were these like weird things that were 
Definitely placed there by these, by the bobs. Uh, you watch used cars, you can definitely see that there is such, um, there is an, an attitude about commercialism. There is an attitude about, you know, uh, about the culture wars that we live in. And so I, I think that, that you can see it in their work. I also will say that one of the things I love about the original script, we talked about a couple of changes, was uh, Doc and Marty used to sell bootleg videos to fund the building of the time machine. That's how they got the time machine uh, funded, which I love. Uh, Universal took it out because they're like, we don't want to be promoting piracy. But the idea that that's why he works with Marty is actually really interesting. It's like, oh, we need a young kid to help sell these movies. <laughs> like, you know, like, because why is Marty there? Marty doesn't seem interested in science. Marty doesn't have any science background throughout the whole film. You know, he is just, uh, you know, he seems to be taping Doc, but he doesn't seem to, you know, we don't know why. We don't know why they're there. And uh, and I just thought that was an interesting, funny thing that he was using him to kind of, uh, you know, be a, like a drug, uh, a drug, you know, like what, like a, a dealer, like a dealer of uh, bootleg films, uh, you know, just a really funny way to finance a, a project. Because I remember when I was a kid, I, all I used to love doing was buying bootleg films off the street. It was the best thing. The video camera taped, you know, all the movies out and you'd hope you get a good one. You could never test it. You put the VHS in and you could watch the latest James Bond movie because I used to work in the Bronx and get them all the time. It was the best. <laughs> 20 bucks. Well worth well, it. Can I read too much into something? Yes. Do you think the moment when Marty McFly is playing guitar on the stage and he's like trying to get his parents to kiss and he's starting to disappear and then they finally, finally kiss as he's losing all of his like power and he like does a little guitar chord and he suddenly gets erect. Do you think that Marty McFly in that moment is supposed to be the visual representation of a penis? Wow. I never thought that. I'm not even going to debate it. I'm going to say absolutely 100% right. Um, you know, Amy, I said I wanted to talk about this person because I didn't really properly talk about this person. We talked about Jurassic Park, and that's Dean Cundy. Uh, mm-hmm. Dean Cundy is the DP of this movie, DP of Jurassic Park. And the reason why this movie looks so good, and there's some beautiful, iconic shots. I mean, whether or not it's, you know, the flames going through the legs, the idea of Marty in the radioactive suit over George McFly. There are some, you know, like you said, the way that the the punch is shot, that kind of Dutch angle. The There's so many interesting shots in a very simply shot yeah. film like you know i think in sometimes a movie without like a great... any special effects like his cinematography is the special effect the way like that yes biff pops up into frame looking huge this movie has almost no special effects we think of blockbusters as being special effects driven this is like some neon fire and that's about it and it's dean cundy who makes it feel energetic and that's what I'm talking about. Like again, this movie is not built as a blockbuster, but it became a blockbuster. And you know, it's yeah. it's I think that Sixth Sense falls into that too, you know. Dean has been behind some of the most exciting influential films, you know, you look at like movies like The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, uh some of the Halloween movies. He also had uh director of photography for Romancing the Stone. Um obviously Back to the Future, um Apollo 13, a movie we did on the show. Death Becomes Her, obviously Jurassic Park, you know, uh, and then continues on, uh, you know, working and making really interesting films. I like Dean a lot. I went to his house to interview him when I did that podcast on Halloween. And one thing I really remember about interviewing him in his house is that his decorations in his living room were all giant original stills of um, Sleeping Beauty. 
the original oh, Sleeping wow. Beauty animation by Disney. And he was like, the darkness in that film makes it so beautiful. And I love that, like the the DP of Halloween, you know, the guy who came up with that like famous tracking shot going around the house and up the stairs and up until you see the murder, that his touchstone was old school Disney animation. In the light, he said he the way that Disney animators in the 50s used light was just beautiful. You know, and he's also now the DP on the new Book of Boba Fett series on Disney Plus. So he is not only working, but working at the forefront of uh, cool projects till this day. It's true. And also, you know, we mentioned Kathleen Kennedy really briefly. Like, I think because we have her in the news right now, I was like, the woman killing Star Wars. Oh, my God. Like, I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to Kathleen Kennedy since she's been showing up when we haven't been getting to talk about her yet. I mean, not only did she work with Spielberg, like help him with Amblin, um, do like Gremlins and Goonies and Arachnophobia and Jurassic Park and Twister and Roger Rabbit and Sixth Sense. She's just... Cool. When she was in middle school, she was on the all boys football team. She was, uh, I think, the quarterback. She's just a tough girl. She was. Um, she came into uh, Spielberg's radar because she was John Milius's assistant. You know, the crazy guy who was like, yeah, oh, yeah. Vietnam, blah 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 blah. And Spielberg kind of quickly like poached her, brought her on board into to be in his orbit, and like really promoted up from assistant to somebody that he really just thought their advice, their opinions were brilliant. And of course, like speaking of influential, we would not have one of my absolute favorite cartoons, Rick and Morty, if not for, you know, Justin Roiland pranking everybody with Channel 101 by trying to make the most traumatic thing anybody had ever seen. Uh, a cartoon called Doc and Marty. Marty is spelled with an extra huh? H and an I. And um, if you're listening to this with any children around, just put your hands over their ears for about 30 seconds. The time travel car won't start. Oh, no. What can we do? What are we going to do? I checked. Bloody testicles, Marty. What? You want me to lick them? Yes, Marty. It's the only way to fix our time travel car. You have to lick my balls, Marty. The saliva needs to be warm and fresh, and it must be administered by your tongue, Marty. But I don't understand how that would work, Doc. I, I don't, I don't, I'm confused. I don't... Marty, trust me. I built this car with my own two hands from the ground up. Hurry! Okay, Doc. You convinced me. Here goes nothing. All right. Well, Amy, obviously... We really enjoyed this movie. We, you know, there's a lot to dissect here. And I think a lot more than probably we both even realized when we went to, you know, pick this film. Because I think that, you know, for you, you were really hoping that Roger Rabbit was going to come into the mix here. I and, was, and I, I think, love that movie. you know, I do too. And I, and, you know, I think Roger Rabbit has a lot of things to say about Hollywood, uh, veiled in the idea of animation. And there's a lot of, uh, ideas about commerce in there as well. I think that Zemeckis is really an interesting guy. And, and again, to kind of throw the love, I will say that, you know, Blank Check did a whole series on Zemeckis. So it's worthy of listening to people break down Zemeckis, uh, bit by bit. Um, but were the people out there didn't like this movie? I mean, this is a huge hit. What did it did it not work for certain people? There were not many people who didn't like the movie at all. Most people love this movie, but there was a negative review from Sheila Benson at the LA Times. So I'm going to read her review. And honestly, as I was reading this, it was like I feel like she and I saw just different movies. Although she has a couple points that you will know that they're correct when she gets to them. She says, "Strange how scale is occasionally everything in a movie." If Back to the Future had been about the size of, say, Repo Man, a movie you and I did a live show on, it might have been one of those appealing films that begs to be adopted. It's not. It's big, cartoonish, and empty, with an interesting premise that is underdeveloped and overproduced, and the outcome is hollow and materialistic. Everything here is huge. Even this California small town with this movie classic town square that by now should have a statue of Frank Capra in the center. She's dissing on our boy, Frank Capra, I think. So I think she's playing into the image of Frank Capra that you and I don't believe in. 
Wait, I go on. There are a few nice moments of nostalgia for the sexually uptight, unlightened past. But Marty, Marty McFly uh, is big on brashness and energy and dangerously low on subtlety. Uh, she says on his relationship with his mom that perhaps the French could manage this at a pole with delicacy, but this crew can't. It is an extended joke with a faintly rancid taste. And that you might hope from the beginning that we're in for another buckaroo bonsai, a movie crammed with so much visual and verbal invention and character detail that it almost burst. No such luck. And then she takes quibbles with some points of the movie. Uh, she says that an all-black band could never have played in a small-town high school dance in 1955. And she says that the plutonium is part of an action involving a bunch of deadly machine gun-toting Libyan terrorists. Can't remember when terrorists were last funny, but it certainly hasn't been these last few years. <laughs> I will say the Libyan terrorists are pretty much the worst part of the film. Like, they come yeah. in from, like, a comic 1930s movie serial. They're they're dumb in ways that the rest of the movie isn't. Like, they drop their machine gun. They're sloppy. Yeah. They're not just kind of crude stereotypes. They're idiot crude stereotypes. And I wonder the if Libyans that's to dilute. Cool. And I, I wonder if that's to dilute some of the... Uh, the overt fear of that, right? Like, you know, like, we have to make, this is something that we're scared of. Right. We have to make them silly and dumb. Um, because it's like, by the way, these kill, they kill the main character, you know, like that, yeah. like, you know, to the audience's point of view, like they said, when they did the first test screening, the audience was really having a hard time with it. Cause they didn't know if it was a comedy. And when the dog went in the car and disappeared, they're like, Oh my God, what happened to the dog? Like this movie, again, if you don't know what you're expecting, it could maybe hit you a little bit differently. Cause again, like you said, this movie opens up with 20 minutes of like the life of Marty McFly uh, going off to bone his girlfriend, uh, or I should say they want to co-bone. Uh, they're both uh, they're both involved in the in the boning decision uh, up at the lake in that small car, which I don't understand how that would work. Uh, anyway, I, we talked about this movie a lot before we've gotten to this movie about. I think I've said it numerous times. I would put this movie on the list of a hundred best films. Of all time. I think I stand behind that. And when we talked about a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, we really, it kind of helped me solidify this movie's placement. It does It's a Wonderful Life in a brand new way that I think this movie will be around for a long time. It's been around for a long time. And I think it will continue to be around for a long time um, because the themes are really universal. And I think, you know, yes, that was in an era of Reagan, but this is also things that we can recognize and see. I, I, I am a, a big proponent of this film and not just because I love it. Um, there's movies I love that I don't believe belong on this list, uh, especially in this category. But what do you think? I deeply love it too. I think part of the, Trauma for me in this blockbuster miniseries is I thought I could come in and be like, all right, all right, all right, we don't need these films. And every single time we watch one of these blockbusters, I'm like, actually, this film is terrific and I really deeply love it. Even as I'm like, can we please erase the name Spielberg just to know what it feels like? Mm -hmm. And so I hate feeling so divided on on this because I feel like, I guess I'm being like a NIMBY. Am I being a film critic NIMBY? Like I, I aspire to one set of cultural values and then my heart says another, like what's wrong with me? Uh, no, but I think this is what I love about you as a reviewer. I think that you are always true to what you feel like you don't, you're not creating a narrative that is like, well, I need to do this. You're, you're, this is how you feel about it. And I think it's like, it's okay. Like you don't have to, you don't have to check a box. Well, I know that I'm being cruel uh, mm -hmm. by saying I want fewer Spielbergs. And I do desperately want fewer Spielbergs. Uh, 
And at the same time being like, but what if I had two Camerons? And now I'm like, but what if I had two Zemeckis's? Like, what if I had like Back to the Future and Roger Rabbit? And I think that for the sake of me not letting myself off the hook, I will say maybe I'm Back to the Future, but it has to go against Roger Rabbit. And I want one of the two. Okay. All right. Interesting. But I I know that that will kill me to make that decision and I'm not ready yet. All right. I think like, let's, let's, you know, let's let the conversation continue and, and go out into the ether. I, I am, I'm excited to see where we keep on going with this. We, you know, Amy, we pulled out a bunch of our old summer blockbuster episodes uh, from the library. You can go back and listen to things like the Sixth Sense and Toy Story and uh, Raiders and Jaws. Um, and I also, we're working on an idea because there's so many to cover here. We want to make sure that you can listen and get all your summer blockbusters on that we are going to maybe pull out an old episode of the canon, which you and I debated the merits of Ghostbusters. Oh, that's uh, right. You know, it was right when we were getting to know each other. Exactly. And I feel like, you know, instead of doing a brand new episode on Ghostbusters, it might be nice to uh, have you guys listen to a little bit of a different version of the show. But uh, we want you to get your blockbusters on. So take a look and make sure you keep on looking out for this sort of stuff uh, because we want to make sure that we give you enough to watch. And I don't know, this series has gotten me very excited about summer movies and I'm excited you know it, they, like I was excited to go see uh, Snake Eyes and I'm looking forward to seeing even the Jungle Cruise like there was a time where I just see every summer blockbuster because it was just fun it was fun movie going so uh, I that's where I'm at right now here I am liking every summer blockbuster something in me is really broken this summer too I think I'm just excited to be back into the theater and I was like Snake Eyes if it wasn't called Snake Eyes this would be a fantastic movie if it didn't have to be part of the Snake Eyes G.I. Joe lore I'm all in on this as like a fried kung fu movie. It just it I makes mean, me sad that it's like I get distracted because Henry Golding is a guy with so much charisma and like he gets to, you know, flirt a little bit with people. And I'm watching this being like, I love watching Snake Eyes flirt. And then I'm like, but Snake Eyes isn't supposed to flirt. And then I'm like, but but can I just watch the Henry Golden is in this movie and he doesn't have to be a Snake Eyes movie? Well, I think so just call it something does- else. I'm going to call that movie. Hi, it's me. I'm Bob. I'm good at kicking people. And then it doesn't have to be snake eyes and it's fine. Okay. All right. All right. Well, there we go. That's a whole different conversation. All right, Amy, our movie next week uh, was another tightly contested one, one that was decided by you. Um, We are, of course, talking about speed. Jan DeBont, Keanu Reeves, big summer movie, but a little bit more adult, like you said. Take a listen to the trailer. All right, pop quiz. Airport. Gunman with one hostage. He's using her for cover. He's almost to a plane. You're a hundred feet away. What do you think? Shoot the hostage. What? Go for the good wound and he can't get to the plane with her. Clear shot. You're deeply nuts, you know that? All right, gentlemen, what we have here are 13 passengers in an express elevator. Bomb's already taken out cables. Bomber wants $3 million or he blows the emergency brakes. Anything else that'll keep this elevator from falling? Basement. He can strike anywhere at any time. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Why are they messing with me? Do they think I'm doing this for fun? <laughs> for LA cop Jack Traven. Tell me again, Harry. Why did I take this job? Oh, come on, 30 more years of this, you get a tiny pension on a cheap gold watch. Cool. The game began. Very exciting, Jack. Some close calls, huh? When someone put the city of Los Angeles to the ultimate test. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. 
Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? Now. Are you insured? Yeah, why? He's the only solution. We just got a ransom demand from your terrorist. Says he's rigged the city bus. Where's Jack? Where do you think? Stay on or get off. Get off. All right, I'm excited. Paul, always a pleasure debating the essential issues and traumas of film with you. Thank you for sharing this giant dome head of Steven Spielberg's brain with me. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group. That is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.